I'd like to encourage you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We are in a verse-by-verse study of the Word of God as located in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if you were not with us last time, we started what is the so-called practical section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4. And maybe for a little bit of review, we could read the first 16 verses of chapter 4, and then I'll give you a little bit of a sense of what we covered in verses 8, 9, and 10, and then we'll dig into where we left off, which is in verse 11. So you follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now last time we talked in our exposition about verses 8, 9, and 10, and even prior to that in that first section that we read, you would see, as I do, that the theme of this section is surely the idea of unity. Unity. It is throughout this particular portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In fact, look back at verse 3. He says that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, call to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's obviously talking about 
our unity together. And then verse 13, he again speaks of the idea of unity until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So he's not just talking about relational unity, but he's also talking about doctrinal unity. And then he speaks about unity again in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The whole theme of this chapter and certainly of the first 16 verses is the theme of unity. God wants us to be unified He wants us to be unified both relationally and He wants us also to be unified doctrinally. We confess this one faith and we are unified in that faith and we confess that even with our differences, we are to be unified in the faith relationally with one another. That's the way God shows a watching world how we are together proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ by our unification by our love for one another, by our love for that unity, by our eagerness to maintain the the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So this entire section is filled with the concept of unity. And how do we achieve it? How do we achieve that unity? Well, here is one way we achieve that unity, according to Paul in the text of verses 11 to 16, and as we study it tonight, verses 11 and 12, He gives us something. In fact, if I were to give you an outline for the message tonight, the very first point of the outline we could say is the giver. The giver. Look at the first part of verse 11. And He gave. And He gave. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to study that. Notice back up in verse 7. But grace was given, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So in just two sentences, not very far apart from each other at all, verse 7 and then the first part of verse 11, there is the subject matter of giving. And it is Christ who is giving. He is giving something to us. In verse 7, grace was given. And in verse 11, persons were given. There's a calling for persons to be given to the church for a particular function, which we'll find out tonight. And in verse 7, grace is given to the church. And it's given to the church according to the measure of Christ's gift so that the church can be matured. You might even say that verse 7 Grace is being given for that relational unity that we talked about. And in verse 11, Christ is giving us grace for the persons who are going to help in the maturing process for the unity of that doctrinal uniformity that we talked about. So you could say verse 7 is an aspect of what we are given for the solidifying of the relational unity that we are to express toward one another and toward a watching world. And verse 11, we are given persons to help us be trained or equipped for ministry so that we can go on, according to verse 13 and onward, that there is to be a doctrinal unity among us. 
So either whether we're talking about relational unity or doctrinal unity, we're talking about Christ giving us something. And if you were here last time, you saw that I also talked about giving, of course, from verse 7, Christ being the gracious giver of ministry gifts, ministry opportunities, ministry appointments. And so we're talking about a major aspect of what God does in our lives. And He does it through Christ. And when He does it through Christ, He gives us things that we need in order to be unified. And it actually goes back to what we talked about this morning. God is sovereign, and God is the one who causes us to grow. God is the one who gives us gifts. God is the one who wants us to maintain with eagerness this unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And it is God who gives us a supply of grace so that we may have this unity. He wants it, He commands it, He wills it, so that we would have it. And by the way, this is a major apparatus in Paul's teaching ministry. This is a major way that Paul wants to talk to us about what we've been given. And what we've been given, according to Paul, is grace. By the way, under this heading of our first outline point, the giver. The Apostle Paul is uniquely, among New Testament Bible writers, uniquely the person who talks with a kind of um, parallel structure in several places in the New Testament where he uses this concept of grace plus given. Grace plus given. And what he means to say is is this, and we'll look at some passages that uh, articulate this Pauline view of ministry. He talks about our need to be given something so that we can be involved in helping the body along, to solidify the body, to minister to the body, to mature the body, to grow the, the body. And when he gives us this concept of the giving of something, what is that something? And that something is grace. Grace, God's grace. You know, I often think, and uh, of course it demands our correction if we think this way, I often think that Christians assume that what they've been given via grace is their salvation. And of course that's true. But that's certainly not the only time we've been given grace. We have been given, yes, it's true, salvation grace, we might say. But we are also given for the unity of the body, both relationally and doctrinally, a kind of grace from God that extends even beyond that salvation grace to what we could call sanctification grace. Sanctification grace. He doesn't stop giving us the grace at salvation, but He continues giving us grace and even more grace for the opportunity to minister to others in the body of Christ so that we may have relational unity and that we might have also doctrinal unity. And so Paul, unique among the Bible writers, not exclusively so, but Paul is the predominant writer that speaks of this grace, charis, that's the Greek word for grace, even the Greek word charismata, which is unfortunately translated most of the time in the New Testament as gifts when it should be translated graces. So we're talking about grace, charis, and graces, charismata, and that Paul tells us that, tells us that this grace is continually given to us in order to minister to each other. Not just in our salvation, but also in our sanctification. And he does it, by the way, this grace plus 
given kind of theology right here in Ephesians, specifically in chapter 3, and he uses himself as an example. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. And notice this grace plus given concept. For this reason, I, Paul, a minister for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, parenthetically, or accentuated by the the dash here after Gentiles in the ESV Bible, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's what? God's grace. Now notice, because of Paul's theology and what he's trying to teach us, the word given is going to come soon in that sentence. The stewardship of God's grace that was what? Given. Given to me for you. And that's the signal that Paul is talking about a kind of grace gift, a grace givenness for his own ministry. And here he calls it the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And what was it? Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. This revelation, of course, is that there's this new thing that God is going to do in the world. And it wasn't known in the Old Testament. And it was this, that God was going to bring Jews and Gentiles together to form the one new man, the body, the new body in Christ, the church, the bride, the elect. And he says, I was given a stewardship by way of God directly revealing to me this new information, uh, this new uncovering, this unveiling of the body of Christ made up of Jews and Gentiles. And I have this stewardship and it is God's grace and he gave it to me for you, he says. And then look at what he says in verse 7. Of this gospel, this good news of the glorious combining in the body of Christ of Jews and Gentiles who are saved, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me. Grace plus given. Grace given. Grace gift. What is that grace gift? It is this teaching this ministry of Jews and Gentiles together. And it was given me, he says, by the working of his power. And then verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. So three times in three verses, in the first part of chapter 3, grace plus given, grace plus given, grace plus given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul meditating, thinking, studying, not just simply as a rabbi of old, but using all of that rabbinic training, all of his knowledge of the Old Testament, and even that he couldn't figure out until God revealed it to him directly that the Jews and the Gentiles were going to form the one body in Christ. And he says in his own heart and mind, glory be to God, this grace was given to me. This grace of the knowledge of the revelation of this mystery which has now been revealed to his saints that Jews and Gentiles can in fact not be at war with each other but be at peace with one another. And they can know the love of Christ and the power of Christ because grace is given. That's Paul. That's his heart. And he says this over and over and over again. 
The giver, Jesus Christ, understands that the only way we can get it, the only way we can understand the body of Christ, biblical knowledge, biblical understanding, biblical teaching, and the only way we can understand the mystery of God, the future plan of the ages, uh, the last things, our eschatology, the only way we can understand any of this is if God dispenses, gives us His grace, grace plus given. And Paul loves to talk about God's grace, and he loves to talk about God's grace being given to us as a gift. And notice how he does it in Romans chapter 12, for instance. And this is that unique teaching of Paul where he exalts the giver, the giver of grace. Look at chapter 12 of Romans. And by the way, when Paul tells us this, It is primarily in context, just like I've already shown you about chapter 3 of Ephesians, chapter 4, as we will study it, and he gave. And here in Romans 12, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 12, some other passages. In every context, Paul talks about this grace plus given context in the very, very warp and woof of ministering to the body, of ministering the, the body's opportunities for grace to be given to them. This is amazing. Look at chapter 12 as he speaks in verse 3. For by the grace given to me. Now this is in the context of, of ministering opportunities, service opportunities in body life in the church. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And then he talks about these ministering opportunities. Again, unfortunately... Uh, Verse 6, having gifts, having charismata, that just means ministry opportunities, service opportunities. You remember I told you last time that the idea of gift implies certainly to Western Christianity, American Christianity, in two ways that pull us away from understanding these passages as we should. One is, as I told you, you get a gift at Christmas time and you look at that which you've been given and you take it, you hold it, you love it, you appreciate it, and you focus in on that gift as though it's something, even though you've received it, you take it and you want to have it and it's something that you focus on. You're focusing on that gift received. of course, sometimes you think of the one who has given it to you, but often it's what you want, it's what you desire, and you focus in on yourself as having received it. Another way of speaking about a gift is the idea that someone is gifted. They've been given some kind of um, apportionment. Uh, They've been given some kind of ability. Uh, They've been given some kind of endowment. And when they talk about gifts, they think of it in the endowment sense in the ability sense. And that's not what the New Testament is talking about when it talks about these things. In fact, the notorious translations in most of our Bibles, including the ESV here, talks about the charismata as gifts. And if you're not careful, you're going to immediately think, because of this list that he gives here, if this, then do this. If this, then do that. Whatever those gifts are, it's my endowment. It's my ability And that's really not what he's talking about at all. If you translated it in verse 6, having opportunities, having ministry service, having to 
come to someone and meet their need. Now, that would be a clunky translation, but you see what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get us away from focusing on self and focusing more on the needs of people around me. And that's why when you see this here, having graces, the grace to minister to people that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If I had graces in prophecy in proportion to our faith, then prophesy. If service, then serve. In teaching, then teach. In exhortation, then exhort. Then in contributions, then give. In leading, then lead. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, if you have been graced by God to see a way of serving the body, don't look at yourself. Don't focus on yourself. Look out to the body and to their needs and then seek to meet that need. If somebody needs leadership, then stand in and lead. If somebody needs a contribution in the body, someone's poor, someone has needs, then seek to meet that need. You have been given by God grace plus graces. God will grace you to extend grace to someone else. That's what Paul's teaching. That's what he's saying here. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 15. And I'm spending a little bit more time on this particular point because it is so very important for us to kind of rethink our issue with spiritual gifts. We're talking about graces and we're looking outward instead of inward. Chapter 15, verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly, Paul says, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God. And in this case, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Everything I have, it's grace given. Even to be a, uh, a minister to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1, four. Just a few pages over, chapter 1, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You've been given grace for graces, for seeing how you can grace others. Chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder. And you say, well, then it says right there, like a skilled master builder. But his emphasis is not on himself. The emphasis is not on his ability. The emphasis is not on his endowment. The emphasis is on the grace of God, which has been given to him to do a service, to do a responsible work for the kingdom. Yes, of course, you're responsible to do it, But get away from my gift, my ability, my endowment, my apportionment, and look more to it's the grace plus given concept of looking at needs and meeting those needs. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 8, 1. Same Pauline concept. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And I especially like this reference because the context will go on to talk about giving, financial giving. And in this case, churches that have a little bit more, even though the Macedonians themselves were poverty-stricken, but they gave out of their poverty to the even more poverty-stricken in the church in Jerusalem the very, very poor church. 
And what is he saying here? The grace of God that's given? I appreciate, I exalt the grace of God that has been given to you as Macedonian Christians so that when you reach into your pocket to supply the needs of the poor church in Jerusalem, that's an evidence of what grace has been given to you in order to give. Isn't that amazing? You're just seeing the needs. You've heard from Paul that there was a need in the church in Jerusalem to give to the poor, and the Macedonians were reaching into their pockets. They weren't thinking, but I don't have the gift of faith. I don't have the gift of generosity. They're not focusing on themselves. They're focusing on the need that's being expressed, and they reach out to meet that need. Look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. Galatians 2, 9. This is a repeated theme from the theology and practicality of Paul, Galatians 2.9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. They recognized that God had given me grace, and so they gave me the right hand of fellowship as one of their co-leaders. But it was God's grace, and it was given. Second Timothy Chapter 1, verse 9, you say, I think you've made your point. Yes, I have. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What's the point? God gives us ministry grace to those members of the body of Christ for unity purposes who are then able to meet needs within that body by God's grace. Is Christ any different then when He gives grace to those who need it? No. That's why verse 11 says, and He gave. That's the, that's the giver. Second main point, the called. The called. What did He give the body? for the sake of relational and doctrinal unity. How about the latter part of verse 11? He gave some as apostles, I think it should be rightly translated, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers or pastor teachers. Here are the called. And again, someone's immediately going to say, but you see, they're the gifted. In fact, your outline point probably should have said the giver and the gifted. But because of Paul's theology, I really shouldn't say the gifted. I should say what? The called. He called them to a specific purpose, and he called them to do something. He didn't call them to have an ability. He didn't call them to have an endowment. He didn't call them even to have a skill, and he certainly didn't call him because they were endowed, because they were skilled. Remember, most of these men of the first century were ordinary guys. I mean, if you think I'm somehow skilled or endowed and have some uh, major ability that you don't possess, you're wrong. I don't. I love to preach. I love to teach. And yes, it takes training and it takes a level of ability, but it's not because I'm focusing on myself to do that. It's because it's what you need. It's what you desire. It's, it's what you want. And God has called me, not because I'm uh, majorly gifted in any area of speaking or study or communication. No, 
In fact, most of those first century men who are in the categories that are listed there, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, were, were not particularly gifted in terms of their natural endowments, in terms of their natural ability. Well, then you say, well, it's what God did when He supernaturally reached in and saved them, and then He, boom, gave them those abilities right there on the spot. Well, if He did, bless God for that, but it doesn't necessarily say that in the New Testament. It doesn't really say when God saves us, uh, He gives us this special ability, this supernatural endowment. No. He has fashioned us. He knows us from eternity past. And when He saves us, He calls us to certain responsibilities and duties. And how do we see those opportunities and duties? We see them as we open our eyes and we see the need and we seek to meet the need. That's it. Even a, even a pastor, even a teacher. We open up our Bibles and we, we seek to meet those needs. And that's what we're talking about here. And He gives four categories. The first is apostles. Apostles. Some as apostles were given by Christ. And I think particularly this is a reference to the 12, to the 12 apostles. And I say that because, look at chapter 1, verse 1. Every time Paul uses the word apostolos in this particular book, he's talking about the 12 and one himself. And he says in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He was the 13th apostle, untimely born, as he tells the Corinthians. But nevertheless, he's an apostle. He was commissioned by Christ there on the Damascus Road. And he saw the risen Christ, so he fulfilled all the qualifications of what it means to be an apostle. And so, I think he's talking about the 12 plus 1, Paul himself, or maybe he's excluding him for the sake here in chapter 4 of saying that God has given the 12 for the foundation laying of the church. Maybe he's being even a little bit more modest. I would include him here, but certainly... It's primarily referencing the 12. Now you say, well, that's pretty obvious. Of course it's talking about the 12. Yes, look at chapter 2, verse 20. It says that the body of Christ, this one new man, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Chapter 3, verse 5. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then here in chapter 4, apostles. I think it's primarily talking about the 12, but there are some who actually say that this is talking more than just the 12, and you say there were actually more than 12 apostles? Yes. That particular word, apostolos, which means to be sent, sent with a message, can be what we could say is apostle with a small a and apostle with a large a or capital A. The apostles with the capital A are the 12 plus Paul. The apostles with the small a means someone who was just generally sent in the first century of the church to spread the gospel and to help the other apostles and prophets. And did you know that there are other apostles that are mentioned in our New Testaments? There, there are, but it's apostle with a little a. So really, whether we're talking about the whole of the apostles, those with a little a and those with a big a, we're still talking about Christ giving them to the first century church for ministry purposes. You say, what other apostles are there in the New Testament that have been given other than the 12 plus Paul? Did you know that Barnabas was called an apostle? Uh, Judas and Silas, not the 
Judas of the Twelve, but another man named Judas. Judas and Silas were talked about as apostles. So there were other apostles with a little a. So even if they're included here, which I don't think they are, we're talking about the foundation of the church being built according to chapter 2, verse 20, chapter 3, verse 5, and now in chapter 4, verse 11, and these apostles were given. Secondly, prophets. Prophets. And he gave some as prophets. You say, what are these people? What kind of category is this? These prophets, now hang with me, these prophets were New Testament prophets, like the Old Testament prophets in the sense that they were giving direct revelation by God. These are these New Testament prophets. And you say, are there prophets today? No. No, there are not. Why? Because the foundation of the church has been laid. Look back at chapter 2, verse 20. That the body of Christ is built on the foundation which doesn't need to be built anymore because it's already laid, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the prophets, like the apostles, are the ones who laid the foundation of the church. And how did they lay that foundation? Well, think about it for a moment. Most of these New Testament letters, certainly including the book of Ephesians, were written at a time in which it was later in time And all of these prophets were living in that time and they were giving direct revelation from God because the canon of Scripture had not been closed and fully recognized. You see what I'm saying? When we have the fully closed canon of the New Testament, all the books have been written, those books have been seen as clearly apostolic, they're clearly and unmistakably from God, by God, and when the canon is closed, then there's not any need for a prophetic direct revelation from God through these prophets to give instruction for the church. No need for that. But since there has not been a closed canon by these times, Paul's writing to them. There are other writings that occurred after the book of Revelation. And because of that, As the need arises in individual churches, for instance, in Corinth and 1 Corinthians, and when you have in 2 Timothy for, or uh, uh, 2 Thessalonians, for instance, you have, or 1 Thessalonians, for instance, you have the opportunity for prophetic utterances to be given to the church as the need arises. Now, I know people get so confused about this because they say, well, if there were New Testament prophets in that day, why aren't there New New Testament prophets today? We don't need them because the canon of Scripture is closed. We have the Scripture. We don't need prophets today. We don't have prophets today, and we don't need prophets today. It was for the purpose of the foundation laying of the New Testament church. I mean, can you imagine that you're in a church in the first century, maybe in Asia Minor, and you're believing and trusting God for everything that God has given you by way of revelation. But you didn't have it all. You had some of these letters that hadn't even been written yet, or some of them are in the process of being written. And because they're in the process of being written, you and I in those churches need direction. We need answers. And before the canon of Scripture is closed, God uses, miraculously so, these prophets 
to give us the needed information, the needed revelation to carry on our Christian lives. And when he gives that to us, we praise God for it. And we praise God for those New Testament prophets who are bringing it to us. And once they've given the full revelation of what we need, and once these things have been inscripturated into the Word of God by these apostles and by the direct revelation of the prophets of the New Testament, when those things have passed and we have the sufficient full revelation of God in Christ by way of the Scripture, then we don't need apostles and we don't need prophets anymore. It's like a cascading argument. If you had those prophets in that day, you also had prophets. When you had prophets in those days, you had full and complete divine revelation being given out. But when those apostles and prophets see the inscripturated word come to be, they die off and the need for apostles and prophets also die off because we have the completed canon of Scripture. We have everything we need in this book. That's why 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4 says that all that we need for life and godliness is through our knowledge of the precious and magnificent promises of God's Word. So yes, prophets are here. That's why people get confused and they're reading 1 Corinthians. In fact, turn over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and there'll be people today who'll be confused about this. And they'll say, yeah, but I, I read about prophets and prophecies in our Bibles, and I'm wondering, well, why isn't this relevant for the day, for today? Why isn't this operating today? For instance, you see in verse 8 of chapter 12, to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Those are miraculous opportunities for people to get information, wisdom, and knowledge that they don't possess because the Scripture hadn't been fully completed yet. Verse 9, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to, to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And someone today reads 1 Corinthians 12, and they read that little list there, and they say, wow, I mean, why aren't those things operating today? Maybe they are. And there are churches who try to reduplicate these things. Tongues, miracle workings, prophecy. And they say, we ought to reduplicate that because that's what 1 Corinthians 12 says. And they get into the kind of excesses and the kind of problems and the kind of issues that we see in the modern charismatic movement today. You look at verse 27 of chapter 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. And you're reading this list and you're saying to yourself, wow, I mean, th this is what was happening here in Corinth. And if this book is supposed to be for me today, then why aren't we opened to these various ministry opportunities? Why aren't we open to the way these things operate in the body of Christ today, or should? And the answer is 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. God gave first these apostles for the foundation laying stones of the local church. 
And then he gave these prophets who gave out prophecies, revelation directly from God, so that it could fill in the gaps of wisdom and knowledge that they weren't receiving by way of what you and I have in this book. And then evangelists. Do you see that listed there in Ephesians 4? Evangelists and some as evangelists. Who are these people? I believe it's those who were proclaiming the gospel. They were evangelizing. They were the ones who were actually what we might call church planters and missionaries of the first century sort. Now remember, this is a cascading argument. So if we have apostles and if we have prophets, then we have evangelists. And what are these evangelists doing? Guess what? The word evangelism or evangelizing is only mentioned three times in the New Testament. Once it's mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul says, do the work of an evangelist, talking to Timothy. And remember, the canon of Scripture had not yet closed. And then there are a couple of references, one here, of course, and one in the book of Acts. And I want you to turn in the book of Acts because I want you to see this. Look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And I want you to see some of the miraculous work on the part of evangelists that were, of course, miraculous both in the sense of the apostles and prophets. Look at 8.4 of the book of Acts. Now those who were scattered went about preaching. That's the word evangelizing. Preaching the word, evangelizing the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. You say, well, there doesn't appear there to be anything miraculous about that. But look at verse 35. You remember he was evangelizing on the road there, the Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, and he was reading the book of Isaiah and he wasn't understanding it. And so God led Philip, the evangelist, to this eunuch to talk to him about the gospel, to evangelize him. Verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He preached to him. He evangelized him. You say, well, again, there doesn't seem to be anything miraculous about that. Look at verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, he baptized him. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel. He evangelized to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Look at Acts chapter 21. That was pretty miraculous, wasn't it, folks? That was the miraculous that was occurring in the first century church, like those apostles who were doing miracles, like the prophets who were giving divine revelation, and like the evangelist Philip, who God just took him, and he took him from one place, and he moved him completely to another place. Why? Because God was doing, in a super fast kind of way, evangelizing Gentiles. And he couldn't wait for Philip to go from where he was talking to the Ethiopian eunuch until he had to go to Azotus. And so he just miraculously took this evangelist, and he pushed him from one place and pulled him to another. That's miraculous. We don't find that today. Look at chapter 21, verse 8. 
On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist. There he is again, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. And notice this, verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. They were prophetesses. They gave prophecies. They gave divine revelation from God. And here's a male prophet in verse 10 named Agabus. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This was a divine revelation from God. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, speaking about Paul, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So he gave this divine revelation, this prophetic word about what was going to happen. And he was telling everybody, including Paul, this is what's going to happen to you. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up Jerusalem. Why? Because we didn't want Paul to be imprisoned. But notice Paul's response, verse 13. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. They didn't want that prophecy to be true. They didn't want Paul to go there. Folks, we're talking about miraculous things here. We're talking about miraculous occurrences You know, if you were an apostle in that day like Paul and you walked by and someone was covered in Paul's shadow and they were healed. And Paul had a handkerchief and someone was healed by Paul's handkerchief. And Peter raised someone from the dead. And these prophets, like the four daughters of Philip the Evangelist, they were prophesying and Agabus prophesied. This this is miraculous stuff that's happening. And the prophets, they're prophesying. Folks, this is all for the foundation laying of the church. This is for the building up of the first century church. This is miraculous stuff. This doesn't happen today. And it doesn't need to happen. Why? Because we have the full, complete revelation of God in the sufficiency of the Word of God. We don't need those things. So you say, well, why does Paul then in chapter 4 talk about these miracle persons? because he's just giving an account of the salvation history of the church. That's what he's doing. He's just giving you a history lesson. And God, through Christ, gave. And he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists, and he's giving you a history lesson. This is the way it happened in the first century. And we rejoice in that. And it's almost as though from that point until now, he brings us into time and he says this, and some as pastor teachers. You see that listed there in chapter 4, verse 11? And pastor teachers. That pastor word is poimen. means shepherd. And the word teacher there is didaskalos. It means teacher, someone imparting truth. And you say, why does that go together? Because it says pastors and teachers. Well, it's a noun plus the and word and teachers. And that's unlike the others that are listed here. So you should combine them or at least see them as combined in some sense, even though they're distinctive. Pastor teachers, pastors dash teachers. And what do they do? They shepherd the flock. That's what I do. They teach. That's what I do. And so I could be included in this number here. So as salvation history was continuing to be wrought, In the power of God, it comes to our own day, and this is a person, like myself and others, who have been given to the church, called, called to the church. And that's my life. That's my vocation. 
This is what I do. Truth be told, I can't do anything else. I'm not good at anything else. Ask my wife. I, I, I can't do anything else. I'm not, I'm not proficient in doing anything else. But God has called me for something. And that's the third outline point, the equipping. And we'll go real quick with these. Look at verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Oh, I love that equipping function. The word equip means to prepare or to train. Or maybe some of your translations might say perfecting the saints for the work of ministry. You know, like Paul talks about perfecting people in Colossians 1, maturing them, training them, preparing them so that they would be fully able to do the work or the service of ministry. You know, this is the, this is the real guts of what it means to mature the body of Christ. It really is. The equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. I'm not supposed to do it all. I'm not supposed to do it all. I'm only supposed to be the sort of mouthpiece, as it were, and you are the ones who hear the teaching of the Word of God, and you take this teaching, and you say, this applies to me. I can do this. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to look out and reach those needs of those around me. This is this equipping function. And I'm to teach and exhort and instruct so that you can know what to do, how to do it, in what ways. And it's not just from the pulpit. It's also private instruction. You know, Paul says in Acts 20 that he preached publicly and from house to house. He did it in the marketplace. He did it in the house. He prayed with them. He talked with them. He spent time with them. He nurtured them. He discipled them, including elders and non-elders. And he did all of this for the sake of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. This is the equipping function. And it's what we're called to do. It's what we're supposed to do. And it's me doing my part, you doing your part for the cohesion of the body, for the building up of the body, for the structure of the meeting of needs, and for people not to have needs that aren't being met by the body. This is the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And fourthly and last, the purpose. The purpose. Look at the latter part of verse 12 for building up the body of Christ. That's the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of the equipping ministry by the cold, by those given by Christ, is for the upbuilding of the body. And here's the amazing thing. Chapter 3 says we are the building. Verse 22, in Him you are also being built together, like a holy temple, this big structure. We're not only the building but we're involved in the upbuilding. Isn't that great? We're the building of God, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You are God's building. You're God's field. You're God's building. And you're not only the building, but you're involved in the upbuilding. The upbuilding of the body. The edification of the body. The growth of the body. The maturity of the body. And we're going to talk about that next time on the 19th when we get to verses 13 to 16. And he tells us exactly what the body's going to look like from a doctrinal perspective and their unity in that doctrine. We're going to see that. And this gives us a sense of how it occurs. God gives 
apostles and prophets and evangelists in those first century days to to explore the very foundation stones of that body as it's built brick by brick by brick. And then these pastor teachers both then and now come along and God gives them the calling to teach and preach as shepherds and imparters of truth. And when we do that, we are the ministry function of your ministry by giving you the fuel which drives your opportunity to look to the needs of others. And you're equipped to do it. You're eager to do it. Your desire is to do it. And it's because of my desire and your desire. And what desire is that? For the building up of the body of Christ. For the upbuilding of the building that we are. You know, this is so exciting. I mean, this church is being launched. If you could see this church, as I close, as a microcosm of a kind of of new thing. Like the Jews and Gentiles, the new man in Christ. It's the first century. And Gentiles are being saved and Jewish people are being saved. They're realizing that their Judaism is not going to cut it. It's not what God accepts. He accepts us only on the basis of our faith in Christ. And these Jews and Gentiles, once they were warring with each other and they were warring factions about this Jew and that Gentile and they were arguing with each other and they were talking about food laws and they were talking about Sabbath and they were talking about other things. And then God just wipes all of that away and he brings them together together through Christ under the lordship of Christ and they look at each other and they say wow God is building something here it's the new man it's the new building it's the new temple this is glorious this is exciting I wonder how it all works I wonder how we're supposed to do it together you're a Jewish Christian I'm a Gentile Christian how are we supposed to do this together and the first principle be unified okay we got that we're unified now we're no longer warring with each other then what do we do now Well, there's this ministry that we ought to have with one another. So here are these uh, Jewish older ladies who are over here, like in Acts 6. Uh, There were these Gentile ladies over here, and one set of ladies, they weren't being fed, uh, they they weren't being cared for, and so they had these sort of proto-deacons that were being formed. Uh, You see this, and there were seven of these deacons, uh, full of good reputation, the Holy Spirit, and they worked on them so that the Gentile ladies wouldn't be out of sorts or the Jewish ladies wouldn't be out of sorts. And they looked around and they saw needs. And then the book of Acts says, and there was sort of this communal effort that people didn't have the kind of funds they needed. And so everybody brought their their resources together and they just laid them at the apostles' feet and they just said, look, you take some of this. And of course, there were those who were faking it. They were lying. And who were those? Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. They said they were going to bring some of their their donation uh, and they lied about it. They didn't bring all that they said they were purposing to do. And so they were killed on the spot because God demands the kind of unity and the kind of truthfulness in a body like that. And you see throughout the rest of the book of Acts and that as you see in Asia Minor, all of these churches are banding together to form this unity. And what it looks like is that everybody sees what is said there in verse 4. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And we're unified. And what Christ has done is give us these people, these apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the upbuilding of this body so that this body could be so relationally unified and then doctrinally unified that God is glorified and the world sees us as true Christians for who we are, lovers of ourselves and lovers of others. And God is so pleased to do that. 
Oh, I long for Thousand Oaks Bible Church to be like that first century church where we say we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and we see needs and we want to meet those needs, whether it's financial or physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's mental, uh, whatever it is, we want to help people understand the gospel. We want to reach out to people. We want to take the Caneo Valley and we want to minister to that group. We want to evangelize others. And as we do that, the building is built up and we are involved in the very upbuilding of that building. What a glorious truth. And I know I'm going too long. But you see how exciting this can be. And your part in it. Do you want to be a part of this? Praise God. Let's be a part of this together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the patience of these dear people. Thank you for allowing them to see at least a small part of my excitement about what this church can be, about what the Conejo Valley can see in the ministry of our church and other local churches like it. Lord, thank You for the unity that we possess, eager to maintain that unity by the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Father, I pray that You would give us in our fellowship in our ministries, in our teaching, in our accountability, the kind of unity that is special. Not fractured, not fake, not unity that seems like it's something, but is only something on the outside and not something on the inside. And may we gather together as men and women and children of Jesus Christ call to these things for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Oh, we pray that it would be so and everyone's part in it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.